Amen. I'm actually going to begin by praying this Sunday's collect, which is a prayer that's being prayed all around the world today. And I think it fits quite nicely with this particular part of the service. This is the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Let's just pray, shall we? Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. If you have a Bible, please do open up your Bibles now. We're a church where we always say it's helpful if you bring along a Bible. Uh, we, we do turn frequently to different scriptures, and if you've got one to hand, it helps you to check what I'm saying with the Word of God, which is a good thing. While you're turning there in your scriptures, my message today is entitled, The True Prosperity Gospel. The True Prosperity Gospel. You know, in this church, we don't preach the health, wealth, prosperity gospel as many do preach it in the world, which is really, in essence, a gospel of greed. But we do preach a gospel that brings prosperity. And so today, we're going to look into God's Word and we're going to see what that actually means. What is the true prosperity that God's Word and His promises bring to all those who believe? If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm going to put the words up on the screen for you. I'm sorry if you can't see them very well. I shall read as loud as I can. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. When Isaiah wrote these words some way back in the 700s BC, the threat of war hung over the nation of Judah in every direction. To the east, the empire of the Assyrians was growing. The city of Nineveh was becoming a world power. And their threat extended all the way to the borders of Egypt. To the north, there was a likewise threat from Syria. And also, sadly, from the nation of Israel. There was a threat of war in Isaiah's day on every side. And that was the context 
into which God spoke and promised through Isaiah the gift of a child. Now this wasn't any child, was it? This child was a divine son. Not just a human child, but a divine child. And not just a divine child, but a king. A royal son who would have a kingdom that would be marked specifically by peace. By peace. Justice and righteousness. And this child's kingdom... Isaiah said, would never end. This is a kingdom that was only ever going to increase and increase. And so, although in Isaiah's day they saw the rise of the kingdom of Assyria, the Bible is always clear to tell us that every human kingdom, no matter how great and how powerful and how dreadful, always comes to an end. This is the book of Daniel boiled down into a quote is that the kingdom of God endures forever. The kingdoms of men always come to an end. Now this royal son in Isaiah 9 is given four names. Four names he takes. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. El Gibor. Everlasting father. And the prince of peace. The Tsar Shalom in Hebrew. Now, today on the second Sunday in Advent, traditionally the church has focused on peace. And so today, we're going to just take one of these divine names and spend the rest of the sermon focusing upon it to see what the Lord will speak to us through it. And that name is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now, peace as I'm sure you're all aware, is a precious commodity. It's a precious thing, isn't it, peace? It's something that it's right to want. It's something that is good to have. Now, we live, Becca and I and the girls, we live in a busy house. There's two parents, there are two children, there's two dogs, and there's two cats. We live in an end terrace. Now, on the busier evenings... You might occasionally find one of us protesting rather loudly, please, will you just give me five minutes of peace? Just five minutes. We try to honour each other's requests as best we can. But why do we say that? Why do we say, please, just a moment's peace? Well, we say that when we're feeling overwhelmed, don't we? We're feeling that life has gotten a bit much. We've had too much stimulation. We're feeling overstimulated and under-resourced. And we need five minutes of silence. So one definition of peace from the Oxford Dictionary is that it's freedom from disturbance. It's tranquility. How many of you would like a bit more tranquility in your life. (laughs) So peace is an environment of tranquility. It's a place of rest and recuperation. A second way that we'll often speak of peace 
in day-to-day conversation is we might say to somebody, I just want peace of mind. I just want peace of mind. It's another common way to describe peace, and it's a correct one. Merriam-Webster describes peace of mind as being a feeling of being safe or protected. When we have peace of mind, there's this internal sense of safeness, of security, that everything's going to be all right. And in a world where we're constantly confronted with reasons why everything should not be all right, peace of mind is a precious, valuable thing to have. And thirdly, of of course, peace is a state or a period in which there is no war. Ultimately, if we have tranquility in and of ourselves, but we live in a country where there is war, we don't really have peace. Peace is the cessation of war. And so peace is an environment. It's freedom from disturbance. It's tranquility. Peace is also a state of being. It's something that we can actually inhabit. And thirdly, peace is a possession. It's something that you can actually have and possess within yourself. Now, sadly, we're confronted most days at this time with war. Obviously, since 2021, it's been forefront in our news reports, it's been on our television screens, it's been on every device that we own. War is a very real thing for us here living in the 21st century. And we get to see, sadly, what what war brings. The products of war, pain, suffering, lack, want, and death. And it's often the vulnerable who suffer the most. It's often the weak who are the true casualties of war. It's unfair. It's unjust. It's evil. It's wicked. We see these products on a day-to-day basis. The abuse of war, the pain of war, the suffering of war. But this has been a constant, hasn't it, throughout all the ages of human history. It's sad to say that there has not been a generation on earth who's lived from cradle to the grave in a time of peace. There is no such generation. In fact, Chris Hedges wrote a book called What Every Person Should Know About War. And in that book, Hedges claimed that in the 3,400 years of recorded history, humans have actually only been at peace for 268 of them. That's 8% of recorded history humanity has spent in peace. And I think he's being generous. So we all have some idea today of what it means to be at peace. But what does the Bible have to say on the subject of peace? Well, I think the best place to go to start with would be to understand something about the word that is used for peace in the Old Testament. So we're going to take a brief look at that word. I'm sure many of you will know it. Even if you've never studied Hebrew, you probably grew up, in a, if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably know this word. It's the word shalom, 
Everybody say shalom. Shalom. Peace. It's a greeting used as a term to say hello. Shalom. Peace. We gave the peace to one another earlier. And I think in our language, peace has a rather more curtailed range of meaning. But shalom has a much broader range of meaning. And I want to show you exactly what this word means. And so when you see the word peace in the Old Testament, particularly when it talks of the peace of God, I want you to understand what's actually being said. If we look in the Lexham Dictionary, if you can't, if you can't see that, I will read it out loud, but shalom means peace, yes, but prosperity, success, welfare, a state of health, friendliness, meaning good relationships with those around you, and even deliverance and salvation. All of those things are wrapped up in that word, shalom. Brown Driver Briggs, another Hebrew lexicon, you probably can't see this one, defines that word shalom as completeness. Completeness. Soundness. A soundness, an inner soundness, welfare, and peace. And so the kind of peace that the Bible speaks about goes way beyond just being an absence of fighting. It goes way beyond just being a feeling of tranquility. It actually has a positive aspect to it. It is health, yes. It is welfare, well-being. It is prosperity. It is complete soundness. Soundness of being. Now when a building is structurally sound, what does that mean about that building? It means it has no weaknesses in it, no faults, no cracks. It's not under threat. Its integrity is perfect. It's whole. It's complete. Nothing is needed. That's what it is to live in peace, according to the Bible. It's to live without any inner cracks. It's to live with this sense of well-being, soundness, wholeness. And there is a, an inner prosperity of the soul that flows out of your life and into others. That's what it is to live in biblical shalom. And so you know, if you've been in this church at all, that I abominate the prosperity gospel. I, I believe it's a false gospel, this idea that you're only walking in the favor of God if you're rich, if you drive a certain car or have certain money, amount of money. It's a false gospel, brothers and sisters. It can't save you. Jesus told us that the way of salvation leads through the cross. Unless you're walking that road of the cross, that road of suffering with Christ and dying to self, then guess what? You don't experience any resurrection. The prosperity gospel removes the cross from Christianity. And so therefore, it is a, it's another gospel, as Paul warned us about. We do not preach this false gospel. But we do preach a gospel, brothers and sisters. We do preach a gospel that brings about prosperity for all those who believe. Well, then how does this gospel bring prosperity? 
How does it bring prosperity? In what way? I want to go back and just clarify a few things about what I've said about the false prosperity gospel. Because God can bless in any way that He chooses. And sometimes He does bless us with finance. That is true. But to say that that is the only way or that that is the the proper way in which God blesses a person is wrong. How do we know that? We know that by reading Scripture. We know that because Paul doesn't rebuke the Macedonian believers, as I mentioned them before, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. These were people who lived in abject poverty. Abject poverty. Many a prosperity preacher today would turn around to them and say, you're just not believing big enough. You just haven't understood the promises of God. You've got a poverty mindset. You're guilty of small-minded thinking. You need to increase the boundaries of your faith. Stretch out the tent pegs. Believe God for be a millionaire. I've been in churches where they said, raise your hand if you want to be a millionaire. Receive it by faith. Bam, 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 bam. It's a false gospel. Paul never rebuked the Macedonian believers for being poor. He praised them for giving out of their poverty. You see, poverty can be an opportunity to actually move in the favor and blessings of God more than being rich can. It doesn't mean that being in poverty is something that is always good for us or that is something that's desirable. We should suddenly desire to be in poverty. No. But it is to say that for some reasons, at certain times, God does ordain us to walk through certain times when we have less. Why? I don't know. Maybe we'll ask him when we get to heaven and we'll find out. But he has his purposes in all things. Amen? But we do preach a gospel that brings about a level of prosperity because God says that it does. So how? How is this prosperity manifested to us and in our lives? Well, The gospel brings prosperity precisely because the gospel brokers a true and a lasting shalom for all who believe. It brokers peace. It brokers peace in your life. Because it's the gospel of the Prince of Peace. And this peace moves in three directions. It moves in three directions which we're going to look into in a moment. The gospel that we believe, the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners such as you and me. This gospel brings about a shalom because it is the gospel of the Prince of Peace. And this Prince rules. His kingdom is actually manifested by the advancement of peace in the world something that's motif right the way through all of Scripture. In fact, in Romans 14, 17, we read that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. Wherever King Jesus reigns, there is righteousness, there is peace, and there is joy. So this gospel brings about a peace. One of our favorite movies, before I jump into these three ways that peace is established, one of Becca and I's favorite movies, I'm sure you've probably heard of it, is Miss Congeniality. Anybody seen Miss Congeniality starring Sandra Bullock, 
And in this film, she's an FBI agent, goes undercover as a beauty queen in the Miss USA pageant. And classically, every contestant is asked by the host what one thing that they would wish for if they could receive it. And they all respond, down pat, same answer, world peace, woo, world peace. And world peace, peace with one another, peace with other nations, isn't that something that's desirable? Isn't that something that we should want, that we should hunger for? Yes. It's something that we should aim for. But I want you to imagine, just for a moment, because we all laugh at it, we, we, we think, yes, world peace. It's pie in the sky. If pigs, if pigs could fly, we could have world peace. But let's just say for a minute, let's imagine for a moment that actually we did manage in this generation to achieve peace. That we actually stopped going to war with one another. That we actually listened to, to John Lennon's song, Imagine. We all just did it, right? Actually, don't think that would be a good idea for us to follow John Lennon. But anyway, great songwriter. Imagine that we did actually manage to stop fighting. And a whole generation was able to go from cradle to grave not even knowing human conflict. Imagine that. A whole generation living without war. They would go to the grave having had peace, wouldn't they? They would have had peace. Would have had being the operative term. They would have had peace. Because the reality that's set before us by Scripture that we cannot escape and no human can escape no matter what they believe about why they're here. The one reality we cannot escape is that there is a God who reigns in the heavens who will one day judge the living and the dead small and great Christian and Muslim atheist and Buddhist everyone will stand before this God of the Bible and give an account for the way that they've lived in this world that is the one truth we cannot escape brothers and sisters we cannot go silent on this. It's from cover to cover in the Scriptures. There is a day coming, amen? There is a day coming that God has set apart. He knows that date. He knows how far we are from it right now. And on that date, every single one of you will stand before Him. And every single one of those out there will stand alone and will give an account for the way that they've lived in this world. Their life will be weighed in the balance. And there is no escaping the force of the words that we find in the book of Revelation. Some he will take to be with him for eternity and they shall live with him in peace and unity and love him forever. But the book of Revelation says that some he will cast into the lake of fire. Now, whatever you believe about what that lake of fire is, I think we can all agree it's not a nice place. It's not somewhere you want to go. It's not something you want to have happen to you. And so even if we manage to somehow politically achieve world peace, it would only ever be a finite peace. 
It would be a peace that lasted for a short time only, a blinking of an eye in the whole context of eternity. And so what is really three score years and ten of peace worth if we don't have peace with God? We often think our most urgent need is peace with mankind. It is not, brothers and sisters, it is not. The urgent need of mankind is not peace politically with each other nation. It is peace upwardly. Upward peace with God. This is what the gospel offers. First and foremost, the most important component of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it gives real, eternal peace. Real peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you have peace with God? How would you know that you have peace with God? That's a question that I want for you to muse on. How would you know you have peace with God? Is it a feeling? I feel like I have peace with God. I know many people who hate the gospel who think they have peace with God. Because they think that that peace is a feeling. They think it's something that they will sense. I'll know I have peace with God because I feel happy about life. I feel I'm affirmed in my choices. I feel that God loves me. And yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Hallelujah. God is a God of love. But you don't know that you're at peace with God because you feel that you're at peace with God. I can feel, I could feel, for example, like I'm a tub of jelly. Does that make me a tub of jelly? Unfortunately not. I am what I am. How do we know we have peace with God? We can't look for it in our feelings. We have to look for it in God's Word. We have to look to the facts that are presented to us in Scripture. What is it that makes somebody at peace with God? Because the Bible is very clear. You're either at peace with God or you're at war with him. I'm sorry to say, that is the stark reality that, pr- that is presented to us by Scripture. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God, alienated, sorry, and were enemies, enemies in your minds. You were enemies of God. The same thing is said by Paul in Romans chapter 3. Enemies of God. Romans 1, haters of God because of your evil behavior. You're either a friend of God or you're his enemy. There's no in-between, unfortunately. But God has provided a way for us to become his friends. I think we often remember the start of John 3.16. We forget the end of it. For God so loved the world, and we like to stop there. Well, there we go. That's it. God loved the world. That's all you need to know. That's the gospel we're going to proclaim. You're loved. You're loved. And very often that message turns into, you're affirmed. You're affirmed in whatever you choose to do, whatever you choose to believe, whatever you choose to live like, you're loved. End of story. But that is not where John 3.16 lands. For God so loved the word. In fact, the Greek word there, hupo, is not so, it's thus. Did you know that? For God thus loved the world. It's not telling you necessarily the magnitude of the feeling of God's love. 
It's telling you the manner in which he did love the world. Does that make sense? God thus loved the world that he gave his only son. That all who believe on him might not perish but have eternal life. That's how we have peace with God because the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, hasn't just ensured the forgiveness of your sins. He's actually made you, all who believe, he makes us righteous. He makes us the righteousness of God through faith. So how do you know if you have peace with God? You know because you trust in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf at the cross. Not in your own works, not in an inner feeling of happiness and peace, but in simply looking to the cross and saying, that is where my sin is dealt with. That is what I trust for my salvation. That's true peace with God. The second direction in which the Prince of Peace brings about peace is inwards. He brings about an inward peace. That's a very real reality that I want to preach to you today. Those who have peace upwardly with God are not left in a state of anxiety. They're not left in a state of not having assurance, but they actually receive and are given an inner peace. Jesus said in John 14, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom, he gives us his own peace. Not your peace, he says, my peace I give to you. It's a divine peace that is the property of every believer that is available to us. My peace I give to you. But Paul says something else interesting. Lynn read this out earlier. Colossians 3.15, it says, and let the peace that comes from Christ. Hear that again. It's a peace that comes to you from Him. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace And always be thankful. Let the peace of God. You know, what I think this speaks to us of is the reality that even as believers, sometimes, just like these Colossian believers, we can for a time succumb to seasons where we aren't feeling very peaceful. Can anybody relate to that or is it just me? And I get angry when I see Christians browbeating other Christians about anxiety. Anxiety is a sin, you need to repent. Listen, some people are anxious because they're traumatized. Some people are anxious because they've been deeply wounded. You wouldn't have a go at somebody for bleeding if they're cut. So why would you have a go at somebody for having panic attacks? You don't know the root cause of that. 
We need to be more gentle with one another, brothers and sisters. Am I right? I think I'm right there. But sometimes there are seasons where we lack that inner peace. And that's why Paul says, let the peace of Christ reign, rule in your hearts. And he gives a bit of advice to the Colossians earlier on in that same chapter as to how they're to do that. So how is it when we're feeling overwhelmed by life, when we are feeling worry begin to kind of envelop us, how do we let that peace that Christ has given us take back control of our hearts? Well, Paul says this in verses 2 and 3. He said, set your minds on things that are above. Not on things on the earth, on things above that are above, for you have died. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So take your eyes off that thing that is causing anxiety, whether it's your own personal symptoms, whether it's other things that are happening in the world that are causing you anxiety, whether it's financial problems, whether it's relationships, your children, your parents, whatever it is, Jesus is saying through Paul, take your eyes off it for a second. Stop looking at it. Put your phone down. Whatever it is that's giving you that anxiety, stop looking at it for just a minute and look to Him. Look to His Word. Look to the promises of the Gospel. Look to His love. Look to His Word over your life. It may not feel easy to do, and you may not get instant relief, but eventually that rule and reign of the peace of God is going to be reestablished in your heart. We set our minds on things above. It's like pushing the reset button in our hearts. Another thing that he encourages us to do is always be thankful. I think this is another thing that helps us reset that inner turmoil is to just take a minute and be thankful. Even if we don't feel like it, even if we can't think immediately of one thing to be thankful for, we sit down and we go, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to think of three things that I can say thank you, Jesus, for today. And I'm going to write it down. Thank you, Jesus, for my family. Thank you, Jesus, for enough money in the bank to do a shop this week. Even if they seem small things to you, they are great blessings and favors of God. Be thankful. Finally, the third final direction in which we see peace brokered by the Prince of Peace is peace on earth. Peace on earth earth. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when there is a real, lasting, eternal peace. We live in a time that theologians like to call the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. That relates to the kingdom of God because the kingdom is both now but also not yet. The kingdom of God is in you, Jesus says. By the Spirit of God, the kingdom is alive inside of you. Because of the work of the Spirit, there is a rule and a reign inside of each believer right now. But equally, there is an aspect of the kingdom that is not yet real. That will be realized when Jesus returns again at the end of history to sit down upon his throne and consummate his kingdom. Then we will see peace. Finally, Luke 2.14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those 
with who he is pleased. One day there will be a peace on earth. It will never be broken. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 to finish. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.